Well, good morning again. I should be praying for uh, Pastor Keith. He got he got sick this week, a little later on this week, and so he wasn't he's not able to be here, uh, not feeling well, and hopefully he'll be back uh, next week. You can also pray for me because I'm beginning to think that Pastor Keith planned this sickness thing because he didn't want you to be upset about how long his sermon was going to be today. I'm, I'm continuing the series, and I'm preaching. He has me preaching Genesis to Revelation, and I, I'm not joking. So, there's a preacher, W. A. Criswell. He, he he preached a similar sermon to this in 1961 on December 31st. He preached for five hours. So, I uh, hope you brought your lunchable. We're gonna be here for a while. Uh, no, we won't, but we better get down uh, to it, and so I'm going to open up with a word of prayer, and then we'll, we'll jump right into the series where we're at. Dear Lord, just thank you for today. Thank, I pray that you would just uh, give clarity. It's going to go fast. There's a lot to cover. Um, I, I just pray that your word is uh, first and foremost clear, that it's piercing, that we'd have a heart for the gospel and see your promise this morning. We pray all these things in your name. Amen. So we're coming to the end of this by design series, and, and we've walked through Genesis 1 through 3, and, and last week we saw this tragedy of God's design being marred by sin. When Adam and Eve, they, they listened to the deceit and the lies of Satan, they ate the forbidden fruit. Uh, because of this uh, sin, all of creation was plunged into darkness as it felt the consequences of their actions. The curse not only affected mankind, but all of creation groans in the aftermath of sin. But thankfully, uh, we also saw last week that the curse also came with a promise. The Proto-Evangelium, it's called, the first mention of the gospel. It came with sorrow as Adam and Eve were banished from the garden, but it also came with hope a hope of a future restoration, a final defeat of Satan and sin and death through the offspring of Eve. So our aim this morning is going to be twofold. We're going to spend probably the bulk of our time just tracing the promise, starting here in Genesis 3.15, all the way through the Bible. And then as we head to the end, we're going to try to identify how this promise should apply to our lives today. I'm going to ask you to do something very unusual. You're more than welcome to try to keep up with me and flip through your Bibles, but I'm going to go fast. I have at least 30 scriptures. I I, I will talk fast. Uh, That's just how I do anyway. So I encourage you just to kind of soak it in as we go through. So we're going to start right here in Genesis 3.15 and just notice a couple things as we begin. Genesis 3.15 says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. He shall. We learn that the promise will be fulfilled through a specific person, and he will be a male. He comes from her offspring. The, say, the promise will be human. Not an angel, not any sort of weird thing, it's going to be human. And it will be born of a woman. And then here we see that he will bruise your head and you shall bruise 
his heel. And uh, God's referencing Satan. And what we learn here is that the promise, the promised one, will battle with Satan. That he will be wounded, but Satan will be defeated. And so from there we leave the garden. And as Adam and Eve leave the garden, mankind plunges deeper into sin. We see Cain kill his brother Abel in anger and jealousy. But the Lord was gracious and gave Adam and Eve another son, Seth. And look at how the Bible describes Seth. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. And so what we see as Genesis continues to unfold, we learn more details about this promised one. As the world became consumed with more and more sin, God sent the flood that covered the earth, killing all of mankind, save Noah, his wife, his three sons, and their wives. And then it's in after the flood that we come to Genesis 9. In Genesis 9, 26 and 27, he also said, Noah is addressing his three sons, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth, and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. So Noah is addressing his three sons, who all of the people of the earth will now be descended from. He declares that the blessing of God, including this promise will come through the line of Shem. Genesis 11:10 through 32. I don't have that up on the screen. If we look to it, what happens is it traces the lineage of Shem all the way to Abram, also known as Abraham, which leads to the next promise found in Genesis 12, uh, 1 through 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And so this promise... Uh, revealed to Abraham gives us some more insight into what this promise looks like. It includes a specific land. Go here to this specific place that I have prepared for you. It includes an innumerable amount of descendants. And most importantly, it tells us that all of the people of the earth will be blessed through Abraham, through this promise. So how will this happen? Abraham understands... I don't have any children. And guess what? Nothing happens right away. So Abraham decides, hey, I'm going to get on this myself. I need to help God out. Sarah's not working out. I'm going to take her servant, Hagar, and boom, he has a kid, Ishmael. Well, God has to correct Abraham. He says, Abraham, I gave you a promise. You need to trust the promise. And so this is what God says to Abram. God said, no. Not Ishmael. But Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, like I told you before. And you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant, my promise, with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. 
So, as the story of Genesis continues on, we're going to pick up in Genesis 25. So we saw it go from Abraham to Isaac. And then Isaac is now grown. And Isaac has a set of twins, two boys, Jacob and Esau. And even though Esau was born first, which normally means he would have received the greater inheritance, through an unfortunate incident with a hot bowl of soup, Esau sold his birthright to Jacob. And so then we read these verses in Genesis 28 as the Lord speaks to Jacob. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Does this sound familiar? It's the same promise coming down the line. So before we move on to Jacob, the next one named here, let's just real quick review where we are so far. So the promise was given first to Adam and Eve. Then we see through the line of Seth, we get to Noah. The covenant is reestablished through his son, Shem, whose descendants included Terah, who was the father of Abraham. Abraham, who was given Isaac, through which the covenant again, right here, was confirmed through his son, Jacob. That's where we're at so far. Are you hanging with me? So as we continue to read the story of Genesis, then we find that Jacob has 12 sons. And then we find that the promise would continue not through the first son or the second son or even the third son, but the fourth son. And the fourth son's name was Judah. And we find out about the promise given to Judah in Genesis 49. Genesis 49, 8 through 12. So I'm just going to read 8 through 10. Judah, your brother shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion and as a lioness. Who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. And what's happening here is now we're getting a little even narrower focus about this promise. In verse, in verse 8, your father's sons shall bow down before you. This one that comes out of the tribe of Judah will be dominant. He is crouched as a lion. Who will rouse him? He will have lion-like strength and courage. It says the scepter shall not depart from Judah. Now we're talking about specifically a king. The scepter shall not depart from Judah until tribute comes to him. This is uh, indicative of one who is the rightful ruler of the world. The King James, if you're looking at it there, says until Shiloh comes. And Shiloh could also be this moniker, this, this meaning, other meaning of, of the one who brings peace. I think they go hand in hand. And the one who the scepter shall not depart from, the one who is owed, deserves the scepter, the tribute, is the one who will bring peace. And that's what we see in verse 11 and 12 here. It's just an allusion to the coming time of peace 
and prosperity. And so the details of the coming promised one are becoming clearer. We're here, we're about to leave Genesis behind, but not before it closes with the death of Jacob and one of his sons, Joseph. In view here is also all of the descendants of Judah, to whom the previous promise was addressed, living in the foreign land of Egypt. But even with the death of these patriarchs, even with the death of Jacob and Joseph, I want to show you the last couple of verses of Genesis, of Genesis in, verse, in chapter 50. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to who? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Joseph was still trusting in the promise. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So from here we move into Exodus. Out of the lineage of Abraham, not from the tribe of Judah, but from the tribe of Levi, we are brought to Moses. And Moses, I assume many know, he's used mightily by God first to deliver his people from the oppressive Pharaoh of Egypt. The essence of what's happening here is found in Genesis chapter 12 when God institutes the Passover. We enter the scene and Pharaoh is kind of in trouble. God, working through Moses, is trying to free his people. And so God sends Moses to Pharaoh and he says, Pharaoh, let my people go. And Pharaoh says, no. And so Moses goes to God and says, Pharaoh says no. And God says, okay, I'll send a plague. And that doesn't work 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 and that doesn't work. And that doesn't work. Nine. Now we're here at Genesis chapter 12. And God sends Moses to tell Pharaoh, Pharaoh, if you do not let my people go, all of the firstborn males in Egypt are going to die. Pharaoh doesn't seem to believe him or care. But at that same time, God instructs his people to take a lamb, to take a sacrificial animal, to sacrifice it, to shed its blood, then to take a little cluster of hyssop, dip it in the blood, and then go outside their house or where they're staying and, and coat the doorpost and the, the top of the frame with blood. And that night, as, as the Lord proceeds, the angel of death comes, that if the home is covered with the blood on the door and they stay inside, that their firstborn will be safe. And anyone who doesn't do that, the firstborn will die. And sure enough, that's exactly what happens. And so many of the Israeli household are saved because they apply the blood to the doors. And Pharaoh's son dies along with many, many, many other firstborn males in Egypt. And you think, well, why would God do this? This seems kind of crazy, kind of extreme. And then why go through all of this weird stuff with blood on doors and whatnot? I mean, he's God anyway. He knows who the Israelites are and who the Egyptians are. Why make the Israelites kill a lamb and do the whole blood thing? Well, he tells us a little bit in Exodus 12, verse 24 and 25, You shall observe this right as a statute for you and your sons forever. He's establishing Passover, not just for this one day, this one act, but he wants them to remember it. 
Well, what does He want them to remember? And when you come, when you come to the land that the Lord will give you, as He has promised, you shall keep this service. He wants to instill in His people, I have promised you this, trust in the promise. God was demonstrating two things here. Number one, that He is faithful to His promise. But another thing that we'll explore in a little bit is number two, that it's the covering of blood that protects them. And so this same theme is continued as the people are then delivered from Pharaoh and then they cross the sea and begin their journey to the promised land. And so God instructs His people. He says, well now, as you're out from underneath Pharaoh, this is how I expect you to live. Here is the law. And along with the law, here is the sacrificial system. And along with the sacrificial system, let me tell you about this day of atonement. And that's where we find Leviticus 16, uh, 29 and 30. And it shall be a statute to you forever that in the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you shall afflict yourselves and do no work, either the native or the stranger who sojourns among you. For on this day shall atonement be made for you to cleanse you. You shall be clean before the Lord from all your sins. When we learn in these verses, as we look at the whole sacrificial system as a whole, it's that God shows mercy to His people as He has promised through the blood of a sacrifice. But the narrative keeps going. It continues with the death of Moses and all of his generation before the people of God can enter the promised land with Joshua. And that begins the conquest of Joshua and then the rise of the judges after that. We see characters like Gideon and Barak and Samson. But then we also see the people of God rise and fall as they cycle between serving God and then serving idols. And then after a while, they got tired of being rescued by judges that God was sending. And so the, the people looked around at all the other nations and said, well, they have kings. We want a king too. And God said, no, you don't. And they said, yes, we do. And so God said, okay, here's Saul. And Saul looked every bit of a part of a king. Problem was, Saul failed to obey the Lord too. And when when Saul fails to obey the Lord, he was rejected in, the, in favor of the young shepherd, David. And this is significant because here that we're going to look at in 2 Samuel 7, 12, 13, and verse 16, we see that the promise of a Messiah is going to be realized through this David. Here it is in 2 Samuel. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, he's speaking to David, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. We're getting some new picture about this promise, about this offspring. And now all of a sudden we're going to have a king coming from the line of David and it's going to be established forever. 
And this is also significant as we look at the genealogy of David because the genealogy thus far lines up perfectly with the prophecies and the promises that we have already seen. We won't go through the whole thing, but if you look at 1 Chronicles 2, we see an important genealogy. And what we realize, if you read it backwards, is that David's dad was Jesse. And Jesse's dad was Obed, and Obed's dad was Boaz, and Boaz's dad was Salma, whose father was Nashon, whose father was Aminadab, whose father was Ram, whose father was Hezron, whose father was Perez, whose father was Judah. Judah, son of Jacob, son of Isaac, son of Abraham, the great, 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 great grandson of Shem. Shem, the great-great-great-great-great-great-grandson of Seth. Seth, the son of Adam and Eve, who first received the promise of redemption in Genesis 3.15. So here in David, we see this particular lineage that's being followed, that you can trace the promise all the way back from David to Eve in the garden, Genesis 3 as well as this new piece of significant information that we just mentioned, that not only will this promised offspring be a king, but that his throne will be eternal. But the question still isn't answered. Well, who is this person? Who is this man that is going to be on a throne that lasts for all of eternity? And so we move from David and the king's into the time of the prophets. And as we, as we move through the prophets, we, the prophets start to give us an even more clear picture of who and what this promised one will be. Here's just a few examples. Isaiah seven fourteen. Therefore the Lord Himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call His name Emmanuel. Isaiah 9, 6 and 7 for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of the peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And then one more for good measure. Micah 5, 2. But you, O Bethlehem, Epaphra, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, who is com- whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. Like maybe from the very beginning. So you put these together and you say, well, how will the promised one come? He will be a man. He will be born of a woman. He will be from the line of Judah, the root of Jesse, the throne of David. He will be born of a virgin in the little town of Bethlehem. And with all this information coming together and going from Genesis to the last prophet, we come to an interesting piece of history. God is quiet. He's silent for 400 years. The people of God have 
really only partially been restored to their land because they're under Persian rule at the end of the time of the prophets. And their circumstances would, would change from one oppression to another over these 400 years. They were under Persia. They were under Greece. They had a time of independence when the Maccabeans revolted, but then they were back under the oppression of Rome. And that's where we start to get into the New Testament time. But before we get there, at least two things are clear. Number one, God's people were still waiting for the promised one to come. And number two, God had not forgotten His promise. And so as we turn the page into the New Testament, which I'll encourage you to do now, Matthew 1, you got a nice blank page probably between Matthew 1. That represents this intertestamental period of 400 years of God not talking. And then here in Matthew 1, God breaks His silence in a remarkable way. Notice how the book of Matthew begins. An account of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Now, real quick, I want you just to use your imagination and pretend you don't know who Jesus is. We're putting on our first century Jewish person hat. Maybe it's around 30-ish A.D. You've kind of heard Jesus' name out there. People are saying he's kind of a weird religious dude, saying he's from God, but you don't really know a whole lot. And then all of a sudden you're reading Matthew because Matthew was written primarily to the Jews. So you're a good Jewish student, and you're, now you're curious. Oh, I'm going to learn something about Jesus. Okay, let's see. And then you hear the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now in your good Jewish student hat, what should be happening is lights start going off. Well, the son of David, the son of Abraham, I've heard this before. Could this be? It's been so long. No one's been taught. Son of David, son of Abraham. And then, because you're a good Jewish student, you dig in. See, we, me, okay, maybe me. I don't want to apply this on you. I just kind of skip over the genealogies because I'm like, really? Do I have to read all these names? can't pronounce half of them anyway. I think if you're a first century Jew, you're digging in at this point. You're like, yes, I need to know. And so you're like, okay, David, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, Perez, Zerah, Tamar. And you're going down through the list. You're like, check, 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 check. This is lining up. Could this be the one? And you keep reading. You're like, well, after the exile, Jeconiah, yeah, I've heard about him. And then Zerubbabel. That's a weird name. And then Azor, and then Zadok, and then Eluid, and then Eliezer, and Mathan, and then Jacob, Father Joseph, the husband of Mary. Hey, wait, I know that guy. He lives right down the street. They were Jewish. I know, and I know Joseph, husband of Mary, who gave birth to Jesus. I just read this whole genealogy basically from Eve to Joseph down the street, and they had this dude named Jesus. He's checking all the boxes of the promised one. And now he's like, i got to keep reading. He's sucked in now. We're just getting started and he's already in, right? And then you get to verse 18. The birth of Jesus Christ came about this way. After his mother Mary had been engaged to Joseph, it was discovered before they came together that she was pregnant. Oh, dang it, there it is. Can't be the Messiah. Pregnant out of wedlock. That can't be right. 
Thankfully, he didn't shut his Bible all the way. It fell back open, thanks to the Holy Spirit, because the next words were, from the Holy Spirit. Like, from the Holy Spirit? Wait a minute. I remember my Old Testament prophecy class, and Isaiah 7.14 says, Therefore the Lord Himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. Well, I don't know how Emmanuel fits with Jesus, but so far we're doing good. He's like, oh, well, i got to keep reading. Joseph. And then he gets down to verse 23, and he realizes that he was remembering right because Matthew just helps him out in case he was really like me and doesn't memorize anything. It's like, hey, by the way, verse 23, he wrote it out for him. Here's the prophecy. See, the virgin will become pregnant and give birth to a son, and they will name him Emmanuel. Like, oh, my goodness. This might be him. i got to read some more. And he goes, and he turns the page, because he has a Bible just like mine. Chapter 2, verse 1, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Wait a minute, get out those Old Testament prophecy notes, go back to Micah chapter 5, verse 2. But you, O Bethlehem, are too little. From you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel. And at this point, if you're a good Jewish student who paid attention, you didn't really have to because he put the notes right there for you anyway, you're like, this is it. This is the one I found him. The promised one is here. So we've answered a question. Except the question isn't finished getting answered because what we know is now who. And this Jewish scholar that I'm made up in my mind right now, he's convinced. It's Jesus. He's jumping up and down. This is him. His eyes are huge. He's going to go tell his neighbors. But then he's like, well, okay, I've got the who. It's this Jesus guy. I need to figure out who he is and what he's saying. But how is this going to work? How is the promised one actually going to make everything right? How will he rescue his people? And unfortunately for, for many, and hopefully not this guy that I just made up, But unfortunately for many, they expecting a warring king who was going to come in and he was going to throw off the Roman oppressors and he was going to establish his kingdom and he was going to reign and rule. But maybe he wasn't that good of a student because he forgot the next verses I'm going to show you. Here's a few other prophecies that also gave us a little more detail about who this promised one would be. Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. And right here you're like, yes! Bring it on! My Savior is here. The king is here. Go get him! And then you keep reading it. Humble. And mounted on a donkey? On a colt? The foal of a donkey? Where's the war horse? Where's the sword? Where's the armor? And then you keep reading because you're frantically looking for the conquering king. Your idea of a military guy coming to beat the Romans. And you come to Zechariah 12.10. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy so that when they look on me, on him who they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child, and weep bitterly over him, as one weeps over a firstborn. 
I don't want to cry over a military victor that's supposed to throw over the Romans. What does it mean he's going to be pierced? What are we mourning over? I thought it was the king that's bringing salvation. What's the deal? Where's the promise being fulfilled? He goes to Isaiah 53 because maybe Zechariah didn't know what he was talking about. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And again, this just isn't computing, piercing, and crushing, and chastisement, and wounds. Iniquity. This is not sounding like what I thought was coming. One more. Maybe the most prophetic psalm, certainly, in the Bible. This passage, David is writing, but uh, he's writing through the lens of Christ here. Verse 16 Psalm 22, for dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones, as in they're not broken. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Now this Jewish guy was all excited because he thought he found the promised one. He thought he was going to come save the world and conquer the Romans. Now he's just confused. It doesn't make any sense. And it won't make sense until we remember to connect the who of the promise to the substance of the promise. What I mean by this is seen most clearly in the declaration by John the Baptist in John chapter 1, verse 29, John knew that the promised one was here, was coming. It was about to start any moment. And he was just preparing the way for the promised one. And the next day, he saw Jesus coming toward him. And he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In this one statement, John identifies the purpose of the promise, the removal of sin, and the method of the promise through the Lamb, through the blood of the Lamb. And here is we. Here's where we connect these two parallel threads that have been going on the whole time. We have a thread of blood that runs parallel to the promise of redemption. Starting in the garden with the shedding of blood of animals to cover the sin of Adam and Eve, moving to the sacrificial ram that was killed in place of Isaac, moving to the Passover lamb whose blood protected the households of the people of God in Egypt, to the sacrificial law and especially the Day of Atonement. Here in this one statement, more specifically in this one person, the thread of blood 
connects with the promise of redemption. We have the eternal Son of God who became flesh and dwelt among us, lived the perfect life we could never live, and then died the death of a perfect lamb and sacrifice, who died the death that we should have suffered, fulfilling the promise of Genesis 3.15. Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. At the cross, Jesus' heel was bruised. And in a big way, this is really referring to it was temporary. But there's another neat little illustration I'll do quickly that may have some significance here. Jesus was crucified. Jesus was crucified. He put his hands out. And the prophecies that we just read, his hands were pierced. They were pierced like this. But they would take... Anyone who was being crucified in this way would take their leg and put them like this. You know where they would drive the, the nail, the stake? Right through the front of the foot, through the heel, into the post of the cross. And what would happen very quickly, and especially if you've been beaten like Jesus, as he's standing here, his shoulders dislocate from the weight. But as his shoulders dislocate, his insides are collapsing on themselves. He can't breathe. And the only way, because shoulders are dislocated here, the only way that he can breathe is to push up. Where is he pushing on? His heels. He's pushing on his heels. So he can push. Literally, his heel was bruised. Now, again, I think it's really just referring to this was a temporary blow. And I think at the moment that Christ died, The world went dark. I think I know. The world went dark. It was silent. In that moment, I can imagine Satan saying, this is it. Promise one, what? It's done. It's one. And it was quiet. Maybe kind of as quiet as that intertestamental period. But then three days later, we had the resurrection. Three days later, Jesus, through the power of the Holy Spirit, rises from the grave. And I like to imagine in my head, you know what Jesus does? Boom! Takes that heel and crushes the head of that serpent. He deals Satan a death blow that is not recoverable. The author of Hebrews puts it perfectly. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has power of death, that is, the devil. Here is the promise of the gospel realized, that we can have the forgiveness of sins through and only through the finished work of Christ on the cross. That's why Paul says in Ephesians 1, in Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. So now as we're coming to the end here of our whirlwind tour from Genesis 3 all the way to the crucifixion, and then even as Pauline, Paul describes what's happened here in this transaction, we must ask the question, well, how does this apply to me? I got three things for you. I'm going to tell you the first two and focus on the last one. Number one, 
we should see the beauty and the purpose of God's redemptive plan from the beginning of time until now. Embrace it. Know it. Trust it. Know that God is sovereign, that He is in control, and that nothing is happening that He doesn't know about. Embrace that beauty and purpose. That should lead us to number two, trust in the faithfulness of God, which means, therefore, we can trust in the many promises that He has given us. And then number three, most importantly, we must understand that there is only one way to claim this promise. Galatians 3, 13-14 says this, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. All right, one more time. Open up your Bibles, Hebrews 11. We don't have time. Otherwise, I would read the whole entire chapter. But I'm not going to. But I encourage you just to open it up because I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fly through selected places. I just want you to listen. Okay, key here, there's only one way to claim that promise. And what I'm saying is it's through faith. And I'm going to prove it to you based on everything that we just said. You listen to how the promise has been connected and received through faith in Christ. It begins, Hebrews 11, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the Word of God. Verse 4, By faith Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain. Verse 7, By faith Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. Verse 8, By faith Abraham obeyed. Verse 17, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Verse 21, By faith Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. By faith Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. Verse 28, By faith he, speaking of Moses, kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. Verse 31, by faith, Rahab. Verse 32, and what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon and of Barak and Samson and Jephthah and David and Samuel and all the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. By faith, by faith, by faith. There's this neat little verse. It's a little complicated. could have been a little easier, in my opinion. Verse 39, as we end. And all these things, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. What do you mean they didn't receive what the promise? 
They, they, they died before they saw the realization of the promise in the person of Jesus Christ. Since God had provided something better for us, what better thing did God provide for us? Jesus. We know it. We've seen it and we've got it in front of us by His Word. That apart from us, they should not be made perfect. And that little weird phrase just means that them and us, we're all going to join together in the same perfection for all of eternity. Which is why you should come back next week. Because Pastor Keith will hopefully be back and he's going to connect the Genesis uh, design marred and then design restored. That's this final perfection that we're all going to enjoy with the, the Old Testament saints of old. We realize Christ. We look back to Him and in faith we enjoy these things. And knowing all of these things, knowing that I can claim the promise through faith, the author of Hebrews then gives every Christian their marching orders. you got to jump to chapter 12. Two verses. Verse 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great cloud of witnesses, those who trusted in the promise by faith from all eternity past until now, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And as we trust in His promise, we too will enjoy eternity with Him forever. May we take hold of the promise this morning. Let's pray. Dear Lord, there's so much, and it's only a portion of Your Word, and it's only a snippet of Your promise. I pray, Lord, that this was clear, it was edifying, that it just showed Your beautiful plan of how you have been involved in the same plan of all eternity to redeem a people to yourself. That just as the men of old would claim the promise through faith, that we would realize the promise through Jesus Christ and that we would live. We would look at Jesus. We would run with endurance that the race that is set before us. That we, you would, we would keep you at the forefront of everything that we do, that You would give us joy as we stand secure in Your promises. And it's in Your name we pray. Amen.